Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. following poem is Invitation. Come be with me in our dream of waking life, a state from which we arise when our day in the sun is done, and we move to eternity. Come be with me by my side, and let peace cover us like a comforter on a cold winter's night with raging wind as we snuggle deep within. Come be with me, you who walks in bright beauty like newly opened flowers, whose fragrance takes away life's aches and pain, helping me to be whole again. Come be with me and create gardens beneath which rivers flow from and to and through one divinity that gave us a way to be free servants. Come be with me a joyful locus of blessings bestowed by the friend who witnessed my loneliness and made a mate to share life's peaks and valleys. Come be with me, mystery woman, for I long to know the treasures that are buried in your essence by him who fashioned you with integrity. Come be with me like music that fills my being with love for your presence, gratitude for your nearness, and courage to hear what has not yet played. Come be with me tenderly, an emissary of God's great compassion that dissolves difficulty by shining upon every shadow. Come be with me, since sadly does my memory bring your sweet smile and glowing eyes that hide a story of longing for love and sincerity. Come be with me, a journey of healing discovery awaits our embrace. Let us dance to the rhythm of heart seeking, the face of God's grace. Come be with me in the sea of return to the truth of pre-eternity, when we first met and were set to be together forevermore.
This week's short story is The Crying Beggar. Alice had been watching the man for some time. Quite likely he was homeless. The man's shoes had holes on the sides where parts of his feet stuck out a little. The bottom of his trousers were frayed and there was a tear near one of the knees. The jacket he wore was soiled and ragged-looking. His face had a sallow hue of a person who neither ate well nor did any of the other things which are necessary to maintain health. His hair had an ongoing wild affair with the wind from which it only occasionally disengaged. The man's obvious poverty was not what had drawn Alice's attention to him. After all, there were so many homeless individuals these days, and for the most part they disappeared into the background as people became habituated to their presence, often on the periphery of one's awareness, but rarely in the center of that attention. No, what had attracted her was his behavior. She had been surreptitiously following him all day long, and since she was a student at the university, she had both the time and the interest to pursue the moment, even when it was an extended one. The man didn't seem crazy. He wasn't mumbling to himself or carrying on arguments with unseen assailants or making bizarre gestures with his hands. For the most part, he was very quiet and well-behaved. He wasn't bothering anyone, stealing anything, or panhandling. He was just walking about the city. Yet every so often, the man would happen upon some situation or event and he would begin to cry, not just a few tears, but copiously. On these occasions he did not wail or lament about anything. He just came to a stop, observed whatever was going on, and then he would begin crying. The tears would fall for a minute or so, very heavily, and then, almost as if a faucet had been twisted somewhere, the crying ended. When this happened, the man would start to walk again. There seemed to be no pattern to the behavior. Both the walk and the crying appeared to be random. The last time the man cried, he had witnessed, and therefore Alice had as well, a loud argument between a couple who had broken up and were not shy about letting everyone know about it. The argument had gone on for a few minutes and ended when the young man walked off in a huff leaving his former girlfriend behind in tears, begging the guy to come back. Before that, he had cried when there was a fender bender at an intersection. Although both parties involved in the accident were fairly upset over the damage which had accrued to their respective cars, they had been relatively civil to each other, exchanged insurance and registration information, and moved on with their lives. However, as the two gentlemen got in their cars and were preparing to pull away, the poor man started to cry. He continued on with the tears until the two cars had disappeared in opposite directions, and then the crying discontinued. Prior to the accident, there had been a procession which was being organized at a neighborhood funeral power. A casket was being placed in the hearse to be transported to one of the world's terminal junction points. The man began crying. One of the people who was standing nearby tried to comfort the man, 
Eventually, the procession got underway. The poor man did so as well. Before the funeral, there had been a little boy who had been looking for his dog that somehow had managed to wiggle out of the harness being used to keep the dog in check. The boy was crying, and the homeless man joined him until the boy moved on, and the man started walking again, but in a different direction. The first event in this sequence of crying episodes that had been witnessed by Alice took place outside a local market. There had been some sort of altercation between the proprietor and one of her suppliers, and the two were exchanging insults and complaints about someone cheating someone. Alice had been sitting at a sidewalk cafe, reading a book, taking leisurely slips from a coffee mug, and occasionally taking a bite of the budded bagel she had ordered. The cafe was across the street from the market, and Alice had watched the whole scene unfold including the appearance of the homeless man in the first episode of crying. At least it was the first instance of crying during the period of time when she subsequently became involved with whatever was taking place. Time was running out for Alice. She had a 5 p.m. appointment at the university, but she also wanted some sort of resolution concerning her curiosity about the man's behavior. She decided to follow the man for another half hour and see what, if anything, transpired. Irrespective of whether there were any further incidents of crying, at the end of this allotted time, she would approach the man and ask him why he was crying. As she was watching the man, trying to stay back far enough not to be noticed, but close enough not to lose him in the crowd of people who were out and about, she began to form various kinds of hypotheses concerning the behavior. One possibility was that while the man was not crazy in any certifiable sense, perhaps he was emotionally disturbed and was very sensitive to any kind of conflict or tension which was going on around him. Another possibility was that although the man might be homeless, maybe nonetheless the man considered the neighborhood to be his home. Being on the street each day for hours and end, Perhaps the man had come to be familiar with and develop attachments to the people who lived there and as a result sort of treated everyone as part of his vicarious family, which he had conjured up. Most of the events Alice had witnessed did seem to involve stress of one kind or another. On the other hand, both the little boy whose dog was lost, at least temporarily, and the person who had comforted the homeless individual at the funeral home seemed to know the man, and maybe in ways that Alice was not aware of, the homeless person might know on some level all of the other people who had been associated with the bouts of crying. Alice was leaning towards the vulnerability to conflict hypotheses, but she had not completely closed the door on the vicarious family possibility. A homeless man walked by someone who was singing a line from an old Guy Mitchell song, I never felt more like singing the blues, and the homeless man began to cry. The individual who had been singing stopped and asked the man if he was okay, if there was anything wrong. The man whom Alice had been following cried for just a bit longer, shivered slightly with a sigh, and then told the singer that he was all right and he thanked the man for asking about his welfare. 
the homeless man began to be on the move once again. Alice checked her watch, worked up her nerve, and began quickening her pace in order to overtake the man she had been watching. She finally caught up to him, slowed down to match his pace, and said, I have a confession to make. The man was very casual about being addressed and replied, What confession would that be? I hope, Alice responded, you won't be too upset with me when I tell you that I have been following you for quite some time while observing your behavior. Why would I be upset over that? the man asked. It's a free country, and to be honest with you, I find it rather flattering that someone would want to spend so much time taking an interest in anything I do. This is certainly not the normal way people tend to interact with me. The two walked in silence for ten strides or so, and the man said, Well, might I ask why I have become such a cause celeb with you? Alice was somewhat taken aback by the question. Not so much that it was asked, but in the way it was asked. Somewhere in this man's background, there appeared to have been some degree of exposure to culture and education. Hesitatingly at first, but picking up steam as she went along, Alice summarized what she had watched since first seeing the man at the market store across from the cafe. She concluded with, I have been debating with myself over the reasons why you have been crying. I'm not trying to pry, and if this involves something too personal, then I'll drop the matter and leave you in peace. But I guess your behavior has aroused my curiosity, and if you can, is there something you are able to share with me about what has been going on throughout the afternoon? For instance, why were you crying when you heard the guy singing? Alice specified. The man said, The kid had just lost his girlfriend. He was upset and he was crying to sing away the blues via the blues. Do you know the fellow who was singing? Alice inquired. Nope, the man said in a laconic style reminiscent of Gary Cooper. Then how do you know why he was singing, Alice pressed. It's hard to say, really, the man replied. I just know things, but I'm not exactly sure how what I know gets into me. Well, Alice added, what about the people at the market where this whole affair, at least for me, all started? Did you know any of those people? Nope, he answered. Were you upset by the conflict and tension associated with any of these events, Alice asked having eliminated one of her two hypotheses. Not really, the man responded. Did you know any of the people at the places where you cried? Alice inquired, trying to narrow down the possibilities. Nope, the man said. Alice put her hand on his arm, slowing him down to a standstill. She turned to him and said, Let me get this straight. You weren't reacting to the stress or conflict at any of those incidents and you didn't know any of those people, so why were you crying? At their sense of loss, the man said simply. If you will review the nature of those events, there was some kind of loss or perceived loss involved in each set of circumstances. I was crying about their sense of loss. But that's silly, Alice retorted. Why would you cry about people losing something when you don't even know them? Actually, it's not silly at all. Now, you want to know what is silly? People being upset about losing things in relationships which do not really belong to them.
the money, the cars, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the dog, the life which had passed on, none of those belonged to the people in question. They belonged to God, and divinity was merely taking back that which had been loaned to the various people for divine purposes. I cry because all of those people are so attached to that which they do not own and which is not their property. The fact of the loss is God's business, and therefore, why should I cry about that? It's just the way things are. It's the nature of life. However, I do have empathy for all the individuals involved in these incidents because of the suffering they endure so long as they are under the illusion that they have lost something which belongs to them rather than being witnesses to the great returning which occurs when that which has been given on a purely temporary basis reverts back to the true owner of all things for further disposition. The man smiled at Alice and said, I believe you have a 5 p.m. appointment, and I suppose you better hurry or you may find me crying over your sense of loss as well if you should miss your appointment. This edition of Musical Interludes is entitled Rest Assured. From high atop, the north face of Mount Everest amidst the mysterious and majestic Himalayan mountain range. You are listening 
to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. Today's meditative essay is titled, Government. If we were asked, and sometimes even if we were not asked, about what we believe to be the problem, if any, with the way various public officials go about their duties, most of us would be quite prepared to share our opinion on this matter. We all seem to feel we have some insight to offer about the difference between good and not-so-good government. Interestingly enough, whatever the accuracy of our perceptions about the political process may be, many of us tend to be oblivious to the quality and character of governmental operations within ourselves. This lack of awareness could be because many of us might not consider what goes on inside of us to be much like a governmental process. However, the politics which goes on in the external world does not rise ex nihilo. It comes from within us. Indeed, external politics is, in a sense, internal politics writ large. The characteristics of internal politics are quite similar to properties found in external political processes. For example, there is a need for decision-making and the implementation of such decisions. In addition, within us, there are activities which resemble think tanks, spin doctors, lobby groups, image consultants, intelligence gathering operations, ethics committees, regulatory agencies, judicial review boards, dirty tricks operations, military forces, legislative bodies. One finds many other features of our inner government which share some common themes with certain aspects of external politics. For instance, many of our internal governments are capable, in various ways and degrees, of biased agendas, partisan politics, corruption, dereliction of duty, human rights violations, gridlock, revolution, both peaceful and violent, fraudulent conduct, cover-ups, repressive measures, irresponsible spending programs, breaking promises, and both minor as well as major scandals of one sort or another. Like external governments, our internal governments make both good and bad decisions. Similarly, our internal governments, like their external counterparts, get both good and bad advice from a variety of sources. Again, like external governments, our internal political systems often are involved in crisis management operations. These operations frequently are as much a reflection of the problematic way we govern ourselves than they are expressions of life problems arising independently of our style of mismanaging our internal government. When the ego is running our internal government, our affairs are in the hands of a politician exemplifying all of the characteristics we tend to associate with the stereotypic bad politician. Indeed, bad politics on whatever level is in general a function of the activities of the ego. The ego, like many politicians, tends to be very charismatic and polished in public situations. However, at the same time, the ego is ambitious, vain, and arrogant. The ego knows, as almost any politician does, how to get things accomplished through pushing the right emotional and psychological buttons. In fact, a considerable portion of the resources available to the ego are expended to gather intelligence 
about the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of the various players in the political game. In addition, the ego has the gift of gab and is always on the stump making internal political speeches filled with stirring platitudes about this and that issue or situation or person. Like the external world twin brother, the ego is forever making solemn promises and undertakings which are rarely kept. The ego, as either head of the internal government or as leader of the quote-unquote loyal opposition, knows how to threaten, cajole, manipulate, flatter, pressure, compromise, bribe, neutralize, and cheat for purposes of political gain. Political gain, however, is not necessarily measured in terms of worthwhile accomplishments. More often than not, political gain is a matter of doing whatever is required to stay in power or to be able to influence the decision-making process in a manner which is favorable to one's interests. The doing of things, whether good or bad, is merely a means to the more important issue of securing or maintaining control. The ego, of course, is not as much in charge of things as it often likes to give the impression is the case. The ego is under constant pressure from a variety of intense lobbying groups that are extremely demanding, temperamental, and fickle. Some of these lobbying groups are jealousy, revenge, malice, prejudice, hostility, lethargy, lust, greed, and desire. When the ego blunders and commits public relations gaffes in its dealings with the external world, the spin doctors of the ego go to work. Their assignment is to try to make things appear as if what everyone knows is the case is not the case. The spin doctors are incessantly trying to give a take or a slant on things which puts the ego in the best possible light with respect to its intentions, motives, and conduct. In ways reminiscent of its external political counterpart, the ego is subject to becoming entangled in bribery, corruption, scandals, and kickbacks of one sort or another. For the ego, such things are just unfortunate risks it runs on occasion in order to get or keep its government up and running. Like many politicians in the external world, the ego doesn't really care what damage it does to others or to the environment in the pursuit of its political agenda. Compassion, generosity, fairness, kindness, servitude, sincerity, honesty, integrity, justice, equality, rights, freedom, and so on are all too frequently just empty words which are trotted out every so often to enhance the image and dazzle the suckers. Nonetheless, the ego understands, as do many politicians in the external world of government, some degree of discretion must be exercised in the implementation of its governmental policies. If one steps on too many toes or ruffles too many feathers, there will be negative, perhaps embarrassing, political fallout. Consequently, the ego tends to play a maximum, minimum, game. The object of this game is to generate strategies which will permit the ego to give up the least for the most return on its efforts. Quite a few rational think tanks in the employ of the ego are set to work on this task. In an attempt to establish at least the appearance of order and intelligibility within the world of internal politics, 
The ego sets up various planning groups, watchdog committees on ethics, regulatory agencies, and assorted judicial bodies. Unfortunately, like its external world doppelganger, plans are not carried out. Violations of the ethical codes are often overlooked. Regulations are not enforced, and a great many arbitrary, unjust, and inconsistent judgments emerge from the appointed judicial bodies. The ego's short-term and long-term goal is control, along with the perks which come with such power. Everything and everybody else must be accommodated to this program. One of the biggest fears of the ego in this respect concerns the possibility that the rightful heir to leadership of the internal government should seek to return from the exile to which it has been banished by the ego. The rightful heir is the spiritual essence of the individual. The ego has powerful resources and allies on which it can call if there is such an uprising. The body, emotions, desires, and the rational mind can all be employed to suppress any move towards spiritual liberation of the homeland. Dirty tricks, negative campaigning, disinformation, filibusters, procedural delays and terror campaigns can all be used by the ego to prevent the rightful heir from returning to the seat of executive power. Moreover, the ego can lead the internal government into an emotional and intellectual gridlock so that nothing gets accomplished and thereby the status quo is preserved. Fiery, impassioned addresses will be given by the ego. In these speeches, numerous charges of censorship, repression, rights abuses, and curtailment of freedoms will be leveled against the spirit and its supporters. The spirit will be painted as a threat against all that is good and right with the present incumbent government of the ego. If necessary, steps will be taken to imprison or lay siege to the one who would depose the ego. Various deployment of troops, blockades, minefields, and ambushes can be arranged by the ego for these purposes. Through years of mismanagement, bungling, neglect, short-sightedness, selfishness, and corruption, the ego has done tremendous damage to the spiritual infrastructure and the ecological balance of the internal world. Therefore, a tremendous amount of work is necessary to bring about a reform of government. There are many frustrations, setbacks, difficulties, and obstacles involved in such a spiritual reclamation project. Many sacrifices will have to be made before the internal government starts operating according to its potential. This, too, the ego will try to use to its tactical advantage. As with all corrupt governments, there is an inertia and malaise which settles on the land. The ego has distributed patronage in various forms. Pleasures, ease, influence, status, and comfort are at risk if the ego loses control. To resist the flow of things in such a world is extremely hard, dangerous work. It takes a lot of effort. The ego can offer in the present ease, comfort, gratification, diversions, and so on. Alternatively, the spiritual side only can offer a future dream of realizing our essential potential through struggle and sacrifice in the present. 
The psychological and emotional advantages all seem to be on the side of the ego. Yet the spirit has a nobility of cause and purpose which resonates very deeply and powerfully in the halls of internal government. The call of spirituality has a purity and integrity which is very appealing and alluring. Furthermore, there is a sense of justice, beauty, and truth inherent in the call of spirituality which cannot even be remotely simulated by the tawdry, impoverished political style of the ego. The possibility of happiness, peace, satisfaction, contentment, and love, which are part of the platform on which spirituality runs, is very attractive. Restoring decency, honor, and integrity to internal government is a very complex task. The magnitude of the challenge intimidates many of us. Many of us believe reforming external government is somewhat easier and more practical than to attempt to reform internal government. We often tend to believe, under the influence of the ego, that the problems of the world are generated for the most part by others and not by ourselves. Consequently, many people direct their efforts, energies, time, and resources towards working on the problems of the governments of the external world. In effect, we embark on a quest which is dedicated to get other people to change in certain desirable ways when we ourselves often are not prepared to change in equivalently desirable ways. However, according to the Sufi masters, this kind of thinking has its priorities confused. We will not be able to reform the governments of the world until we have reformed our own internal governments. The chaos of the world is but a reflection and projection of the chaos of our internal worlds. The foregoing priority of the Sufi masters does not mean we have to abandon the external world until after one has completed the task of reforming the internal government. Instead, they suggest we try to see our interaction with the outside world as opportunities to work towards developing programs, policies, and projects which operate in line with and give expression to the spiritual principles necessary for the reform, care, and maintenance of good internal government. Acting in accordance with the foregoing dialectic cannot help but have, if God wishes, positive, constructive ramifications for enhancing the quality of the social and political atmosphere in the external world. The development of better communities and governments in the external world requires that we repair the problems in our spiritual infrastructure. We then need to take the benefits which are made possible by these repairs and invest them in, among other things, rebuilding our families and communities through the spiritual lessons learned while reconstructing the infrastructure of our own souls. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Music